Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast and season three with me, Gemma Richards. As before, I invite a special guest to share their experience with food, namely friend or foe, whether it is easy or less so. In light of the first two seasons, it appears to be foe for many, as it was for me. But this doesn't have to always be. Exciting news. We started a crowdfunder for the podcast and to help fund anyone suffering with an eating disorder unable to afford one-to-one therapy. Check the link in our show notes, donate, leave a review. We're always so grateful. Because you know if this area of your life is skewed, then so is the rest. It's never just about food. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be here today with Harriet Frew, host of the highly successful Eating Disorder Therapist podcast, which many of you will know already, but if not, have a look and a listen. It's fantastic. Harriet is an experienced counsellor who specialises in eating disorders and body image. She has personal experience of bulimia nervosa, but has been recovered for many years. Since 2003, Harriet has worked in an NHS adult eating disorder service and private practice. She's passionate about eating disorders and enjoys writing, filming and creating content via her podcast and social media to help and support others. I was a guest on Harriet's podcast last year and it's my pleasure to reciprocate and welcome her onto this food thing. Hello, Harriet. Hi, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Oh, that's my pleasure. I think we should tell everyone that we did, we did do a bit of recording earlier, didn't we, in the year and we got to about 20 minutes in and then something happened with the Wi-Fi. Yes, um, it was a kind of classic lockdown thing, wasn't it? <laughs> and neither of us can remember what we spoke about, so I think that's a good thing. So I think we should just dive in. Um, and as you're speaking, I'll probably be going, oh yes, I feel like I've heard this before. But tell me, how, how do you answer the question, food, friend or foe? Absolutely friend today. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I feel... Um, I have a very relaxed relationship with food. Um, I can pretty much eat anything. And um, obviously that is not always how it has been. Um, but yes, fr- um, food is definitely my friend these days. So how long has it been easy for? I'd say really easy. Um, although I always take that, I always kind of say that slightly cautiously because of, um, you know, I never want to be too presumptuous about my recovery journey. But I'd say really pretty easy for the last five years. I think when my children were little, um, sometimes it would would border slightly on friend slash foe, um, you know, with sort of tiredness and emotional eating, binge eating sometimes. Yeah. But it's been a long time since I felt in a really sort of tricky, complicated place with food. Um, I'm very grateful for that. I imagine it's very stressful with kids. Um, I haven't got kids because you do have to be on it, don't you, with food and your relationship with food and and how you're going to demonstrate that to them. But also it must be very triggering for all sorts of reasons. Yes. I mean, I think just as a parent these days, it's so challenging, isn't it, to get the relationship with food for your kids right because of there's so much sort of scaremongering about that your child might become overweight, you're terrified that your child might get an eating disorder. Yeah. So many mixed messages. So um, absolutely. I mean, I've, I think it has been a strong motivator for me to really kind of iron out any of the little bits of my relationship with food that needed work on. And I think um, for me personally, it wasn't so tricky when they were younger, but I feel now my daughter is 15 and, you know, exposed to diet culture in a full on way. 
and very influenced by her peers as she rightfully should be yeah um that has been a bit more challenging and of course it really can reactivate some of my own stuff so i need to be very aware of that and make sure that um, i keep it very separate from her and um you know just be very sort of self-aware and reflective um so i don't sort of project anything from my own journey onto her but she knows that the work about the work that you do obviously she does um but i don't think she knows all the multiple layers of it um, okay. i mean my children all actually um they call me counselor karen <laughs> And um, (laughs) you're gonna love your kids. (laughs) And um, I guess it's the classic thing, isn't it? You're always gonna push back against whatever job or whatever you know, whatever your parents are doing because they're completely uncool. So they all really sort of joke about what I have to say, roll their eyes, and will say to me things like, "Mum, I'm really worried about the cat's relationship with food." (laughs) (laughs) Do they say, "Don't ask me how I'm feeling"? (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So all of that. So, um, it, yeah, it's, it's really tricky because I think you kind of, I think as a parent, I sort of thought, right, I'm here with my counselling skills. I'm, I'm right ready to sort of step in. But actually, it's the last thing they want. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. You need, so, the, you need some boundaries and some distance, don't you? Absolutely. So take it. Take me, take me us back a little bit to when it was a problem. If, as I read in the introduction, you suffer from bulimia. What was your early life like around food? I do remember that you said you lived on a farm. Yes. Yeah, so Take brought, us back to the farm. On the farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I brought up on um, a sort of mixed farm, arable, and um, we had like dairy cows, beef cows in Cambridgeshire. And yeah. um, actually, to be honest with you, my early life in lots of ways was quite idyllic. Um, I had um, a large family. I'm one of four. Um, my grandparents, um, aunties, uncles, everyone was very involved. Um, so, you know, there was many sort of positives about that. But I think what was more challenging for me as I became a teenager and, you know, naturally wanted more independence and wanted to kind of break free, I guess, from, um, you know, expand my horizons, do my own thing. Um, I then sort of had quite a lot of conflict, particularly with my dad. Um, my dad um, really had been forced to go into farming himself, I guess, when he hadn't really wanted to and had never really broken away, had the chance to find himself. So he very much then tried to sort of put that on me. Um, so it was really tricky because I think I felt a huge responsibility almost to kind of as the eldest child to live up to my responsibilities, kind of do what the family felt was the right thing, but then had this real kind of conflict, I guess, you know, I wanted to go off, go to uni, do all those normal things that, um, you know, a teenager wants to do, I guess. Um, Did they want you to run the farm? Yeah, no, my dad did. I mean, I had a very interesting upbringing. Like my dad um, would contact the school and say, um, you know, you're giving her too much homework and it's getting in the way of her farming duties. Really? (laughs) um, I would have loved that when I was a kid. (laughs) It's it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's such a whole kind of paradox. I think because of he was very anti my academic work, interestingly, it actually made me work a lot harder. Um, because of I saw that as my way of escape so it's so interesting isn't it I guess yeah. it's the dynamics of when of perhaps when you feel over controlled by a parent um it's very controlling and um I have no I was because I had lots of friends who were farmers when I was a kid and mm-hmm. I used to love going to the farm and playing with them and likewise they used to love coming to our suburban house 
and not having to do any farm work, not having to pick up eggs or get the cows in. And I, I, I do, yeah, I have those stories. So I, I relate to that. So he wanted you to be home and take on the farm that he didn't want to run. Yeah, so, no, I mean, so my dad is still running the farm to this day, oh, actually. You okay. Know. He is, and I think, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for him, really. I think he hasn't had the easiest life. Um, a tough life, farming. Tough old life. Yeah. And um, in a way, he wouldn't, I think he deeply resented having to take on the farm, but also he had such, a, it was from that generation, there's such a strong sense of duty and having yeah. to do what's expected of you. He would never have allowed himself to have a different choice. So... It's a very much love-hate thing. You know, he would be lost without it. And in a way, he's like in his late 70s now and it gives him so much purpose and he's fit and he, you know, it gives him something to get out of bed in the morning for. So in some ways it's kept him going, but in other ways it's been a bit of a kind of noose around his neck, I guess. And it, it's sort of stopped him perhaps being completely free to, you know, to just go off and be himself and think about what he would have liked to do with his life. So how was how was it around the meal table? And was your mum in the mix? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm very fortunate as well. My mum is um, a great cook. Um, always, I always had kind of like really nice food on the table. And, and I think in my early life, actually, I had a pretty relaxed relationship with food. Very fortunate to have a mum that never dieted as well. Um, so, and we, we pretty much ate everything. So I, I'm very grateful for that because I think, because I had that embedded a lot in my early life. Um, you know, I think I really had a sort of, sort of strong kind of roots in terms of like yeah. to return to. Yeah. So things went a bit more off track when um, I was about 17 um, and I started dieting. Um, I, Why did you start dieting? Um, I don't know. I think I remember just looking in the mirror one day and deciding I didn't like my body. And up until that point, actually, I'd always been just very body neutral. I hadn't really even thought about my body in a positive or a negative sense. It was just my body. But I think that was around the time when there was a lot of conflict between me and my dad. I wanted to apply for uni. He didn't want me to. I was really torn, like, would that happen or not? Mm. Um, split up with my, you know, my first love, which right. at the time, very traumatic. Yeah. And then I think, and then extreme diet on top of that, plus A-levels, the kind of usual stresses that you get around that age. And it was just a sort of toxic mix, I think. Can you remember if your diet, your the reasons for the diet were... Were one were, were punishing reasons or controlling reasons? I'd say more controlling reasons. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I think for me it was about body image. You know, I remember like not liking my body at that time, but it was really so tangled up with all the other emotional stuff that was going on, and more about not liking myself. So it was kind of about my body, but it, it was it was not about my body as well. Quite quite interesting, really, but more about control than punishing. It is a way, yeah, and it's a way to separate yourself, isn't it, from your parents? Because if you stop eating, you yeah. are denying, I'm just thinking on my feet here, probably quite badly, but you're denying <laughs> yourself life. And you're, yeah. it's a very strong statement that, you're, you, that you don't need them yeah. um, and that you would do your own thriving. Thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's multi-layered, isn't it? But so did you, did you then go to uni? Yes. So I, what happened is, um, that's quite interesting is I, so I finished my A-levels and then, um, I kind of thought, oh, my dad will support me with uni in the end. <laughs> he will. He 
Leo, come around. <laughs> and he was, he was adamant. I mean, I have to say, he's got absolute iron will and, you know, that can be positive and negative, but he, he wasn't going to support me. So I, d- I took a year out. Right. And I worked for a year. Um, on the it? farm? Or? So partly on the farm, okay. partly in a clothes shop in Cambridge. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, and saved up money to go to uni myself. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so it's kind of so interesting because I think, oh dear, that difficult time, in some ways it kind of almost made me in some respects because if I had to dig so deep and become so so self-reliant and, res- and resilient, but it, I was also quite broken as well at the time because if I felt so conflicted and um, that I was kind of almost letting my family down by just doing what I wanted to do, I guess. Yeah. Yes, of course. And was the bulimia, which I'm imagining you developed at uni, was that a way of um, symbolising your distress physically so, when you look back? Yeah, so what happened is I actually developed um, sort of, I guess, it, very briefly anorexia nervosa, but I was mild anorexia nervosa when I was at sixth form college. So what happened is, I guess, at that stage, I visibly became very thin. People expressed a lot of concern, you know, all the kind of things that tend to happen, I guess, when someone loses weight. But then what happened is within about three months, I very quickly um, fell into cycles of binging and purging. Um, I rapidly kind of regained weight. So I looked kind of normal again. You know, I mm-hmm. looked, um, you know, back to sort of within the kind of healthy, normal range. Um, so my eating disorder symptoms are very much hidden. And I guess, so back then as well, my parents had an inkling that I was struggling with bulimia, but it was all completely just not talked about. And yeah. um, and because of I looked okay, everyone sort of assumed I was all right. So what happened is I had, had my second year of sixth form was a very chaotic year with the bulimia. So a lot of, um, always sort of trying to get back on the diet, never really succeeding, having lots of uh, binging and purging episodes. Then when I went into the sort of working in the shop year, working on the farm, um, things improved a little bit, actually, I think, because if I had a bit more autonomy and I worked in the shop in Cambridge with these other like sort of 20 year olds and we had a bit of a blast. And it, sure. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it just gave me back a bit of autonomy, a bit of kind of um, freedom. And also I was with another boyfriend then. So things kind of so the bulimia was there in the background but my symptoms were quite reduced um just because of things were a little bit better then and also the pressure was off I hadn't got to revise for exams or um and I kind of knew that I was going to go to uni although you know I was kind of putting off having to deal with my dad facing me doing that (laughs) but I kind of knew I was going to go then so I perhaps I felt a little bit more back in control so it was still there, but um, it wasn't dominating my life in the same way as it had when I was at sixth form. Can I ask you, just before we take a quick break, can I ask you a, a per- an even more personal question? Were you bulimic out of the family home or were you bulimic at home as well? Oh, at home as well. Right. Yeah. Did anyone ever find out? Did your dad ever um, find out? I know you said they were aware, but... No, I think my mum used to know that I would make myself sick and um, and my younger sisters would know, um, which, you know, that's something I think that was really hard because of my, I'm one of four and my younger sisters were sort of like in their early teens when that was going on and not really understanding quite what was happening. Yeah. So yeah, it, 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 yeah it, I, it did happen in the home. 
Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Welcome back. I'm here with the lovely Harriet Frew. And we're just having a quick chat in the break about... I'm doing a, a huge jump now, Harriet. We will, we, we're, I know you're going to university, but I'm, we had a quick chat about shame and eating disorders and what, it was, what it's like to sit and talk about having an eating disorder, even when you're recovered. And I'd shared that uh, I still find it quite difficult. And yet in my head on my own, when I'm chattering away to myself, I'm very articulate. But then put me in front of someone else and I, I struggle to, to articulate and say how I feel. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think yeah, talking about eating dis- having an eating disorder does bring up shame, doesn't it? And I think, I know particularly when we were talking before the break about, you know, like purging in the home and things like yeah. that. I think it's, you know, the horrible kind of dark secrets. It is, see. isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's like sticking a finger up as well, mm. isn't it? So passive aggressive. <laughs> Deeply passive aggressive. <laughs> Um, all right, maybe we'll go back to shame. I don't want to take us off your your story. So you've very tenaciously, you're saving money to go to uni. You're just putting off that moment when you do go to uni because you know that something's going to happen between you and your dad, maybe a showdown or something like that. Yes. So, yes, what I'm trying to remember, really. I think, I mean, in the end, I was determined I was going to go, actually. It's very interesting with me because I think, some in some areas of my life I feel like I have this absolutely iron strong will and I can like move mountains yeah. in other areas I can just be so passive <laughs> <laughs> no I think that's bulimic I really do yeah I think so that's a true. metaphor yeah absolutely yeah no very insightful um so yeah so anyway I did tell my dad I was going off and I think he kind of realized he couldn't do a lot then because by then I was I'd had a year out I was actually 19 by then so you know I was kind of well into being an adult you know a yeah. whole year in yeah so um so actually I kind of went off without too much of an upheaval really um you know he wasn't happy about me going but I kind of went and um yeah so going to Sheffield was like really incredibly liberating experience on the one hand because I think after being in quite an over controlling environment I was just like I'm free yeah sure. <laughs> you know and embracing it all but I did. I continued to struggle with bulimia. And so why did you continue to struggle? Because you now have your freedom. This is this is a bit that fascinates me. Yeah, what a great question, isn't it? Well, I, I guess as well, although I had kind of, I'd gone off and I had this freedom, but I was in so much conflict about it because yeah. of, I still really wanted my dad's approval, I guess. I really uh, wanted him to kind of give me the rubber stamp and to be pleased for me and to be encouraging me. And, um, you know, he wasn't able to do that. So I was in this kind of constant conflict, you know, partly again sure. in a slightly bulimic way, I yeah, guess, of yeah. just like partly on cloud nine, embracing uni to the full, but then also feeling guilty and um that I was doing something wrong almost um it's like yeah. wanting it all isn't it and then feeling like you deserve nothing mm, absolutely you have it you get rid of it you have it you get rid of it mm. so how did you um how did you reconcile your conflict I mean obviously it wasn't just overnight but um how did you go about sort of getting yourself back on track 
Yeah, so I'm in an ongoing journey. So I continue to struggle with bulimia through my time at university, but I would kind of go through phases. I, you know, I would often be sort of better during the term time and then I would go home in the holidays and it would be sort of worse than ever. Again, in that kind of very black and white wow. sense. Yeah. Um, and then I think also as well, just being a student and drinking alcohol, that kind of fueled binging as yeah. well. That yeah. all got a bit tangled up. So, but anyway, I mean, I finished Sheffield. Um, overall, it was a, a really sort of positive experience for me. And then I went off traveling um, for a year. I went off to Australia, worked on a couple of camps um, in America. And um, that was a time for me where I just got away from everything. And for the first time in my life, or the first time probably for several years, I was actually able to start listening a bit more to my own voice to think about what I wanted to do, think about my own values, have some distance from everything back home. Um, I also wrote some letters um, to my mum and my dad. I kind of did a bit of like psychological processing, I did guess. You, did you post them? I did. Ooh, wow. I did, yeah. I mean, How were they received? <laughs> Can I ask that? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly healing, actually. It because is. Because um, I wrote to my dad and um, he wrote back to me and... It was really helpful because I think just from the letter I got back from him, I could really acknowledge that he cared, but I could really acknowledge as well that the way he looked at the world was just so different from the way that I looked at things. And it almost just like the penny dropped for me. It was almost just realizing, you know, he's not going to be able to give you, Harriet, what you're looking for. You kind of need to find that from yourself or somewhere else. You know, you can't yeah. keep knocking on that door and, um, you know, and I think that that was incredibly freeing for me, actually, just to suddenly realise, actually, it's not really about me. It's more about, you know, stuff he's carrying and, and, and stuff he's putting onto me. So I was able to sort of break free a bit from those chains, I guess. And um, and, and that was a, in another kind of year of incredible healing, really, where I think the pressure was off, like not studying, lots of time to read, journal, reflect met some amazing people, had some wonderful experiences, just having that distance from home. And um, and it, it, I sort of decided then as well, that I really wanted to work in eating disorders. Um, you know, I just got, it became a bit more clear about who I was, I guess, and coming back to myself again, which was um, really, really valuable. Two things that I'm struck by, uh, just going back to the letter writing and that that's quite a realisation, isn't it? when you realise it's not necessarily all about you. Yeah. And that people's behaviour is not, has nothing to do with you. Um, I'm a big fan for letting people off the hook. And mm. I just wanted to fly the flag for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how liberating that can be and how that space opens up. And I, I guess it's part of acceptance and, and forgiveness. Those kind of sedimentary layers. Um, and also when you decided to work in eating disorders, had your bulimic episodes stopped? Did they just gradually, fill, you know, peter out? So, yeah, so what happened? I came back from Australia, then I went off to London and did a master's for a year um, in nutrition. During that oh, year, okay. my bulimic symptoms were reducing more and more, actually. And then, interestingly, I then sort of came back to sort of Cambridgeshire and um, started doing like just a sort of temp job and started doing my counselling training and that summer, just before I sort of started my counselling training, was the last time I purged. And that was a bit, of, and, and it wasn't to say that in a way my eating disorder was completely recovered, but I really felt in a way that was almost kind of 
putting a flag in the sand almost, you know, it was a bit of a marker because the purging for me was such a destructive part of the eating disorder and actually not doing that anymore. Even though I was still binging, I still had poor body image because still be a bit restrictive. It was a bit a real milestone. Um, and, sure. I th- and I think, yeah. And then working, um, started my counselling training and um, just being in a more sort of stable place in life. I think, you know, having a regular job, being in a stable place. Um, I think I uh, reflecting as well, I'd had a sort of quite a chaotic few years of, you know, exciting few years, but always moving around and traveling to different places, doing different things. And suddenly my life was a lot more kind of stable. And that really gave me some sort of kind of grounding, I think, to be able to kind of move on as well with my recovery. Did you have any therapy? Yes. Yeah, so interestingly, I had therapy sort of almost after I'd stopped purging. Okay. So I tried to seek help earlier, but you know, back in the day, there yeah. wasn't much available, yeah, was there? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and that was really helpful. So it wasn't really eating disorder therapy at all. It was much more talking about um, my early life, patterns I'd become caught in, how I regulated my emotions, all of that. But it was so, so helpful, really, really helpful. Um, and after your therapy, and now as an eating disorder therapist, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got the frogs in my throat. Do you... Um, I mean, we talked about it being about control and about your dad. <clears throat> oh, there it is. There it is. Um, <laughs> there, there's a frog. Um, do you... It's about, It was about getting your dad's approval, wasn't it? And do, do you know what you were... Oh, I'm not being very articulate here. Do you know what you were after? What was that behaviour? What were you trying to uncover with that behaviour? Do you? Can you distill it? Yeah, no, I mean, really good question. I mean... I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think there's something about me, like I am a sensitive person. Definitely earlier on in my life, I was always looking for that external validation. And I guess bottom line, my dad was somebody who was, I did really love, was really important to me. And somehow, um, yeah, somehow I, I just sort of felt I kind of needed that I needed that kind of stroke or I needed that affirmation from him to be able to be whole almost. Yeah. Why um, not? Mm. Yeah, you need it. Um, yeah, I didn't have answered your question there, so sorry. No, because I think it's really difficult to answer. And I think, and sometimes I think back on my own history and it's very clear and then mm. it clouds over. And I think that's that's sort of the nature of it. We, You know, understanding is available some days and some days it isn't. Mm. And it'd be nice if we could just pin it neatly onto the onto the wall, onto a chart and, and join the dots. But it's not always like that, is it? Yeah, and it's so true. And I think I think my whole sort of family upbringing, I think sort of even sort of therapy I've had since my 20s, looking at the sort of perhaps intergenerational trauma, um, I think my mum and my dad have had so much pressure put on them. You know, so much, it's always been about external validation, so much pressure to have to follow your duty and kind of, you know, follow a certain path. And I think for me, that kind of came right back from the grandparents, the great grandparents, how the farm had been. So it was kind of like it had deep roots really. And I think, you know, a lot of compassion. I think my parents um, were great parents in many ways and um, were doing the absolute best they could and never had the um, freedom and the experiences that I've had to be able to sort of 
find themselves and um but you know so they were just kind of unconsciously passing all that on yeah and there you are converting <clears throat> converting the pressure mm. so yes and it does come from the grandparents and it's like the gift isn't it and you take it when you're not conscious of it yeah and then somehow you have to manage it not yeah. everyone has an eating disorder but sometimes it's a really helpful way to unpick your your psychological sort of genetics i think mm. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you did an MA and you had some therapy and then tell me a little bit about how you started working um, for the NHS and, and uh, yeah. Sure, so, um, yeah, so I was doing my counselling training sort of in night classes. Um, so initially I worked for a charity, Help and Advice for Relatives of Prisoners, actually back in the day, which Great. was a um, wonderful job. Yeah. But yeah, so I applied for this NHS job. I'm in my late 20s and um, I was just really lucky actually because of, as a counsellor, I come from counselling training. Um, usually in the NHS, you need to have clinical psychology training, but um, I was just so passionate. I just kind of, it's one of those serendipitous things. I kind of applied for it. I really gelled well with the people that interviewed me, got the job and, um, you know, never looked back really. Um, you know, I've been really, really fortunate to have a really wonderful team and of people who are very, very rooted in the psychology um, of treating people with eating disorders. You know, that's always been at the absolute forefront. And what would you say the psychology of eating disorders is? <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess fundamentally it's just recognising that the eating disorder is a coping strategy, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's a classic thing. It's not about food, it's about feelings. Yeah. So really, you know, it's working with people to help them understand why they're using this eating disorder as a coping strategy and to help them start to make sense of that, to unpick it and to look at healthier ways of coping. Brilliant answer. And thank you very much, Harriet. That's the end. Um, do you think that the the overriding, surely the overriding feeling is either I'm not lovable or I'm not good enough? Yeah, I think it always comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah, not feeling in feeling in some way that you, yeah, you're you're not, yeah, you're not good enough. You're unlovable. You're not worthy. And you're not. Some, you're not the full ticket to survive not, in this world because it's quite a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, to be certain that you know to be a certain way, and I think even more so these days. But yeah, I think that's really what's underneath it all. But I think often when people are in the sort of so in the woods with it they can't even recognise that because the food preoccupation and all the body image concerns and everything are so um, on the surface, aren't they? It's very hard sometimes to realise what lies beneath. Yes, and it can take an awfully long time to unpick. Mm. And I don't want to use the onion analogy, so I'm not going to use it. <laughs> I think I might just have used it. <laughs> but it, it can take a long time to, to go through the layers. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it really, really can. And I think the tricky thing is as well is I think if you're in a cycle of restrictive eating, maybe binge eating, purge eating, over-exercising, it's very hard to see the wood for the trees because of you are naturally then so preoccupied with all those behaviours and all the thoughts associated with those behaviours or the feelings associated with those behaviours. So it's really hard to even recognise what's underneath. And they become your habits, don't they? Yeah. And Absolutely. then your brain starts to change and they become, well, it becomes a normal function for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. We're just going to take another quick break. I'm going to have a drink of water. 
You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Uh, welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Harriet. Um, I've had a menthol sweet. So has Harriet. It's delicious. <laughs> we finished them. We're not crunching at the microphone. <laughs> so we can continue. Maybe my voice will last out this time. Um, where were we? We were, yeah, uh, common causes of eating disorders, which obviously you can't really distill, but it was about not being, not, not feeling like the full ticket, not being good enough, not being lovable, not being able to function in this world, feeling like something's wrong with you. Um, but you could say that about many things, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. absolutely could. <laughs> Thanks, Harriet. She just went to sleep. <laughs> I'm very relaxed here. Yeah, I was just enjoying my clear tones. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, eating disorders are on the rise. And particularly so in the last two or three years from what I've been reading and hearing about. What do you put that down to in, you know, in your professional opinion? Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, like I guess the pandemic has been really hard for people, hasn't it, on so many levels, yeah. um, you know, in terms of um, just so much change, being stuck at home, not being able to um, do normal things with friends, not being able to kind of go into school normally or go into college or uni. So much disruption, I think, at a point in your life when you're really needing all those sort of healthy outlets, aren't you? And you're wanting to be able to sort of spread your wings and do all those things. So I guess there's been a lot of anxiety and life has felt really out of control. People haven't been able to interact as much face to face. So, so much more has kind of gone online, which I guess, you know, it has there been lots of positives of that as well. But I think, you know, often people have felt very isolated and alone. They've been kind of dragged more down the sort of social media sort of routes as well. Mm. And um, so, you know, I think it's a whole mixture of things, really isolation, anxiety, loss of control. And also, I think just as a society, um, we just put a lot of pressure, don't we, on young people to, you know, schools are very sort of um, pushing people to sort of do well academically, which, um, you know, it's a helpful thing. But I think it's changed from, I just think back in the day when I was at school, um, it wasn't as pressured. And I see what my children have to deal with today. And I think there is a lot of pressure sort of academically from social media to look a certain way. Um, so I think multiple pressures on young people really and food is one of the things that you can control isn't it that you can yeah. turn to do you see mainly young people because you work in an adult eating disorder service are you seeing people of my age I'm in my 50s are you seeing 60 year olds how, how is it yeah, so we see people right across the board. So from an adult eating disorder service, you see people from sort of like 17 and a half up until their 70s. Wow. So we see people right across the board. And I guess still the greatest proportion of people that we see are probably between sort of 18 and 35. However, a, a significant chunk of people are older as well so eating disorders affect everybody do you think yeah that i just find that very moving and ah oh, what a prison what a prison to get to your 70s and still be stuck do you think older people um become used to their eating their disordered way of eating and accommodate it maybe they don't make it till they're very old as well 
um, and therefore don't seek any help because it's just normalised? Or do you think it's something that, I don't know, does get dealt with sooner so that people do recover? Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, I think if you are... I mean, I'm really generalising here. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, I guess if you're perhaps like 50 plus, Mm -hmm. you know, when you may have developed an eating disorder, there was probably not much help available at all. So you're pretty much, if you'd gone to your doctor and if you didn't have anorexia nervosa, you know, if you had any other eating disorder, perhaps even if you had anorexia nervosa, actually, you may not have got particularly um, helpful help. Yeah, that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are many people in the population that who, who have just sort of learned to live with it and to accommodate it and perhaps hadn't even realised how much of a problem it was, particularly because I think if you didn't identify, if someone doesn't identify, say, with having anorexia nervosa and being really emaciated, they may be doing other eating disorder behaviours, but they would kind of think actually that's not an eating disorder. So maybe they don't even feel kind of validated or they have a proper eating disorder when in fact, you know, their lives are dominated by food, they're counting calories, they're maybe binging and they've been stuck in those cycles for years. But yes, they've just become, it's become a habit. They've just become become used to it and they've almost felt that there's not really help available. So they've kind of just got to get on with it, sadly. Do you see people who develop eating disorders in later life? Yes. I mean, I think eating disorders can develop at any time. And, you know, I think whenever there's a stressor or a transition, someone could be vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Um, I mean, I think of an example maybe of someone um, whose children were all leaving home and was like going to be sort of like an empty nester. And and that was a real trigger. You know, I guess when that person had been really invested in family life and suddenly everything was changing, wasn't going to have her children at home anymore and, yeah, developed um, an eating disorder sort of in her 50s. So, I mean, I think it it can develop at any time. And I think, interestingly, with COVID, I think there was quite a lot of people that had quite a disordered relationship with food, but it was kind of being masked by, I don't know, you know, working, hobby structure. Sure. And then with those extra stresses it kind of tipped them into eating disorder territory as well. And I think, again, we've sort of seen that of people of all ages. And how do people get referred to your to, to, the, to an adult eating disorder service? Through, your, through the GP? Yes, yeah, so they go to their GP and that's usually the main route. Sometimes they can be referred from other sort of specialist services, um, you know, maybe like diabetes clinic or another mental health service or something, but GPs are the main route. Okay, and the list is long, I imagine. Yes, I mean... Particularly up until very recently, you would only get seen in an adult eating disorder service if your symptoms are more on the kind of moderate to severe end of the spectrum. Thankfully, there is a new um, new program called FREED um, that is out, which is sort of early intervention for eating disorders, which has sort of been pioneered by several services across the country. And FREED is much more about getting in there early, giving people early support, Um, you know, really trying to get in there within the first three years, particularly because of research shows that if you can intervene with an eating disorder in the first three years, it's so much more likely that someone's going to make a complete recovery. So, So FREED, F-R-E-E-D. Yes, that's right. So also dependent surely on that person going, "Mm, I think something's going on here. I need to nip it in the bud. Yes. Well, I guess someone has to recognise that they have an eating disorder in the first place. I mean, I think thankfully 
there is more mental health awareness around at the moment. There's not always the resources to match. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think people are starting to recognise it. And I think just thinking like on Instagram and stuff, the statistic that sort of 85% of people with eating disorders are not underweight. People are becoming sure. more familiar with that and yeah. almost feeling permission, I think, to validate their symptoms. And it's, I feel passionately about this. It's very, it's so, so important to to reconcile one's feelings about yourself and your your image and and food and eating because then you are freed up to live your life to to celebrate and enjoy food mm. obviously it's not about the food it's about the feelings and and to feel great about your life you're available for other people you're available to do what you want to do it's so hindering isn't it mm. well it, it is isn't it because you you cannot sort of live your life by your deepest values and sort of focus on what brings you joy and meaning and purpose when you are so preoccupied with food and your body um yeah there's not impossible yeah. and be to be in that conflict uh there's you cannot be your authentic authentic mm. self and so um we will obviously have your information on the instagram page uh let's just talk a bit about your podcast when did you start the podcast so i started that in February 2020. Wow. And yeah. why did you start? So to be honest with you, I didn't really, I hadn't given it an awful lot of thought. I just thought I will just give it a go. I think I'd been listening to podcasts a lot myself and found them really helpful and inspiring and just thought I've got some things to say and um, let's just give it a go. And I just, I never really had any great expectations for it. I didn't even know if I would go beyond sort of 10 episodes, but um, I just started and kept going. And I've tried to sort of um, put an episode out every week since February 2020. That's a lot of content. Who was your first, who was your first guest? So my first guest was a lady called Jane Hartley, who is a personal trainer uh -huh. um, and is local to me um, near where I live. And um, she had an eating disorder in her teens and recovered. Um, so, yeah, she was my first guest. So there's, I ask the question, food, friend or foe. So I have, I mean, I haven't had as many people, which is saying something, as many people who say that food is a friend, but I've, the, the difference between what I'm doing and you're doing is that your focus is very much, even though I talk about it a lot on this, mm -hmm. is very much on eating disorders, isn't it? And mm -hmm. body image. And do you have nutritionists on? Do you talk about, I don't know, gluten or the microbiome? Or do, do, you, do you do that or do you just stick to eating disorders? I have stuck more to eating disorders. I mean, I have had dietitians on, but I suppose but it's been less of a focus on that nutritional side. Um, very recently, actually, I've had a lady on, um, Mindy Gorman-Plutzer, who is a functional nutritionist um, okay. from the States. Okay. And that's been very interesting as well because she works, works very much with the gut in recovery and um, actually doesn't work with the all-foods sort of fit model. So that was very interesting as well. So, um, But generally less so. I do veer much more towards... Um, the, you know, hearing people's stories and delving into the psychology of it. Fantastic. And tell us how you, you've done really well. You are on, you're on over 100,000 downloads, aren't you? Yeah, I, th I think That's I'm amazing. on about 178k now, I wow. think. <laughs> That's incredible. So, but, you know, I have to say, I mean, I, I do feel that um, I'm in a very sort of 
privileged position with it all. I feel like it kind of runs itself that people contact me now regularly to ask to be on the podcast. So I don't have to do a lot of work with that. You know, people are sort of stepping forward. And then really I get to interview wonderful guests who tell their story and impart their knowledge. And I really have to be in the background prompting and asking questions and then just putting it out to the world. So I, I kind of feel like it's, um, I don't know quite what the word for it is, but I sort of feel like it, I'm almost like a channel for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think channel's a good word. Do you have, um, you are doing a great job, by the way. Do you have people contact you through the podcast to see you in private practice? Um, yes, I have done. Um, probably, yeah. I mean, I get a lot of people sort of on Instagram and just generally contacting me on my website. And it's hard to always know exactly where the people have come from. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a lot of people have listened to my podcast that do contact me. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. So as I said at the beginning, check out Harriet, the eating disorder therapist. Um, She does lots of content, way more than I do. Um, Harriet. Gemma. If you <laughs> now, then let's get down to it. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Um, that was my special tone. If you were on a, an island, mm-hmm. and it can be any island anywhere, what five foods would you take with you? You can have a store cupboard. I have let people cheat. I'm very flexible about it. Seemingly, one week I'll let people take meals, and the next week I'm low. Absolutely not. <laughs> So I'm saying to you five foods. Five foods rather than five meals. Yeah, it depends what the meals are. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> what would I take? I think I'd definitely take some bread. <laughs> okay. What kind of bread? Um, either sourdough or granary. I go through different phases of what I prefer. I'm currently in a granary phase, so I'd okay. probably take granary. Okay. I would take chocolate. What kind of chocolate? See, again. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's difficult. This it's is a difficult, difficult question. <laughs> I would probably take milk chocolate if it was a desert island thing. Um, so you are some... in, the, you, you've got some sunshine, have you? Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> You're not on a, a field somewhere. No. Okay. <laughs> um, what else? Granny Smith apples, one of my favourite foods of all time. Mm-hmm. What else do I really like? I mean, I want to say like roast chicken dinner, but that's a meal, isn't it? But I'm some... going to let you because you've taken <laughs> granary bread. And when you said granary, I remembered my mum making granary bread. So you can have roast chicken dinner. Roast chicken dinner. And then what would be my final thing? Porridge. Okay. So okay. oats, maybe. <laughs> okay, that's a very popular choice, porridge. Not to say that you're like everybody else, you're not. Um, <clears throat> Harriet, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to this Food Thing podcast. Like I said before, all your information will be on our Instagram page. And um, I hope we talk again. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Gemma. Amazing. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know your favourite bit from this episode. Let me know on Instagram at This Food Thing Podcast or join us again in the next episode.